Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, say this next part with me, but one receives the prize. Read this with me as well. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now when you go down to chapter 10 and verse 1, you read, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things have become our examples to the intent that we, living right now, should not lust, maybe a better word there, would be crave after evil things as they also lusted or craved. Do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell Father glorify your name Lord we're going to talk about some tough things and Lord I got to remind myself in these moments I am not the Holy Spirit only the Holy Spirit can fix the heart so Lord help me to lay aside any temptation to try and convict anyone here today because if I do it it'll be condemnation But Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would take control and that he would convict our hearts today where they need to be convicted. And it's not that you want us to leave here just devastated, but you want us to leave here trusting in you and in you alone. Help us to know that, to see that today. Jesus mighty name and everyone said amen and amen would you give the Lord praise in his house one more time here this morning amen and before you're seated would you turn your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus name so listen if you are just joining us today a couple of weeks ago we started a brand new series here uh, from this particular portion of scripture that we have entitled the heart of a champion And this entire series revolves around what Paul said, again, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, when he said, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And what Paul was saying is, listen, I've been to my share of races, I have been to my share of boxing matches, I have seen my share of competitive games and I have made this observation that even though everyone participating in those games is competing, only one wins the prize. And that one tends to be the individual that trained the hardest, that disciplined themselves the most effectively, and it is no accident that they won. They trained and they participated in such a way that they would win the prize. And then, turning his attention to the church, he says, now if they can do that to win a perishable crown, one that's passing away, 
then how much more should we as believers be running our race in such a way that we may obtain an imperishable and eternal crown? And so what Paul says is, listen, I know you're all running. You've all accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But I want to know this. Are you running your race in such a way that you will obtain the prize? That you will win? Are you just comfortable calling yourself a Christian, showing up on church in Sunday mornings and giving your tithe and offering, but it really doesn't extend beyond that? Are you just comfortable running or are you running to win the prize? Now again, I want to caution you, we're not to take this illustration further than what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's not telling us that we have to run for our salvation and that we somehow have to put forth effort to be saved. How many of you are thankful we're saved by the grace of God through faith and not of our works? Again, give God all the praise for that. We're thankful for that. He's not saying that at all. What he's talking about is perseverance. He's talking about endurance. He's talking about the continuance of faith. He's saying don't fall short. Instead, run every day this Christian race in a way that you may obtain the prize, that you may finish the course and that you may win for the glory and for the honor of Almighty God. And what I told you that I love about this text, and I keep drawing attention to it, but I love it, and that is that Paul doesn't just say this, run in such a way that you may obtain it, and then says, and good luck with that. He actually says, and by the way, this is how I'm running my race. And I want to follow how Paul did it. Paul said, this is how I'm running my race in such a way that I would obtain the prize. He says, I run with self-discipline. I run with certainty, keeping my eyes on Jesus Christ. And then he said, I don't waste energy throwing punches at an enemy that's already been defeated in Christ. Instead, I take on the real enemy every day, and the real enemy is myself. He says, I discipline my body. I bring my body under subjection lest I come to the end and find that I disqualified myself because I did not discipline myself daily for the glory and the honor of God. What Paul is saying is if you want to run your race in such a way that you may obtain it, you've got to do the same thing. You have to run with self-control. You need to run with certainty, keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ in every season of life. And you cannot waste energy throwing punches at an enemy that was already defeated on the cross 2,000 years ago. Because the real enemy is the one that stares at you in the face every day you look in the mirror. You are your worst enemy. And we are to discipline ourselves, beat ourselves into submission. Literally, he is saying that I am to bring my life into subjection. That I am not going to be mastered by my emotions, by my feelings, by my appetites. But I'm going to master my emotions, my feelings, and my appetites with intelligent thinking by a mind that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. That I am not going to get up and just go impulsively through the day. But rather, I am going to be led by the Spirit of God. And I'm going to do what honors Him in all things in Jesus' name. Now, last week, if you were here, you may remember that Paul, again, kind of brings attention to this. And and we had said that it's interesting that we have seen a number of athletes throughout our lifetime that had a brilliant performance. 
and maybe even won a championship of some level and we thought to ourselves, they're going to be the next celebrity superstar. They're going to be the next legend. And the next season, we don't even hear of them. We never hear of them again. And what we said is that for some reason, they could not take the lessons that they learned in the moment and use them to carve out a career. They just flashed upon the screen, and then they were gone. And what we learned from that is that you cannot build a relationship with Jesus Christ one moment at a time, but rather it's taking lessons that are learned in the moment and applying them day to day in your journey with the Lord. And there are too many of us that are trying to build a relationship with the Lord on moments. When I got saved, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit, I ran to God when I was in trouble here. But you don't take the lessons that are learned in those moments and apply them to -to day-to-day life. And so eventually you just fizzle out. You, You just stumble along the way. And the illustration that was given to us, of course, was the nation of Israel. They came up out of Egypt, out of 400 years of slavery. And in the wilderness, they had incredible moments with God. Moments where he appeared to them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. Moments where he opened up the Red Sea and caused them to walk across on dry ground. Moments where they struck the rock and water came out. And moments where they saw manna coming from heaven. And yet those moments were immediately met with doubt and unbelief and criticism and accusation against Almighty God, tempting the Lord, trying to push His buttons so He couldn't be pushed. But they tried that because they could not, in that moment of miracle, say, if God can do it here, He can do it every single day of my life. And so what we want to recognize from them who died in the wilderness of those two million Jews that originally came out of Egypt, only two from that generation. Their children went in, but only two from that original generation went in. The rest of them died in the wilderness because they couldn't put it together on a daily basis. And what I'm just simply saying is, you can't live your life with the Lord one moment at a time. You have to develop consistency. Take the lessons you learn in that moment, apply them to -to day-to-day living, and say, if God moved then, He can move right now. Why would I be shaken? God is going to see me through in Jesus' mighty name. Now, today, Paul is going to deal with another peril, a hazard, if you will, that we can experience in competition, and that is distractions. Now, we have all watched in amazement. We have all sat there in stunned silence when athletes who seemingly had an insurmountable lead became so overconfident in that lead that they were distracted, they celebrated far too early, and ended up falling, tripping, slowing down, going to the canvas, and losing the race or the match because they celebrated too early. How many of you have ever seen that? We've seen that on a national level, on an international level in the Olympics. We have seen people, they just get way out in front of everybody else. And rather than just finishing strong, they started waving at everybody and hot-dogging. Before you knew it, they stumbled and fell and ended up losing the gold. How embarrassing would that be? Well, today... Paul is going to talk about what happens when we become overconfident and allow ourselves to become distracted, getting our eyes off Jesus Christ. 
Israel became overconfident as a people believing that all the miracles that they had seen somehow meant that they had it in with God. That they were so special to him that running in such a way that they would obtain the prize was no longer necessary. I've got such an in with God. I've got such a great lead that I don't have to really concentrate on my day-to-day walk anymore. They became distracted and that distraction cost them entrance into the promised land. And I want you to know that the same thing can happen to every one of us. We as believers can become so overconfident in our walk with the Lord, we can feel almost invincible and allow ourselves to become distracted and not even notice that we have drifted into destructive territory. Even getting our eyes off Jesus. Can I tell you right now, it is possible to come in here every Sunday, lift up your hands, exalt the name of Jesus, and your heart be far from the Lord. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, listen, you can't get caught up in the moment because everybody in the moment feels they're right with God. But he says, man, the Lord is watching you every single moment of every single day. And if he's not Lord of everything, then he's not Lord at all. Look at it, verse number six. It's chapter number 10. He says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I want to talk to you about idolatry. And we're going to begin the discussion here today, but it's going to take the next time we're together to really round it out. So again, I tell you, if you leave here and think, man, I just, I feel like it's incomplete. It is. This is more of an introduction, and you'll have to come back the next time for us to finish it off. But we need to really talk about the state of our heart before the Lord here today. You know, whenever we talk about idolatry, whenever we hear the word idolatry, we immediately think third world countries. Let's be honest. When I say idolatry, most of us have said, what relevance does that have to us? We live in the United States of America. The only ones that practice idolatry are those in third world countries. We think of altars and shrines and sacrifices, incense, blood, little gods made of metal, stone, or some precious metal of some sort. We, we think of of that, something of wood. But I hate to tell you this, but I'm afraid that it's a much more widespread than that. In fact, what would you say if I told you that it is very possible, if not highly probable, that the United States of America is the most idolatrous nation on planet earth? And that some of us practice idolatry every day. Say amen, or I'm leaving right now before you. You know, I heard a story, I heard this years ago, and it so convicted me that it forever changed the way I look at this subject of idolatry. It was told to me by a pastor who had gone on a missions trip to India, and he was there in India, and on this one particular day, <clears throat> excuse me, they went into a particular Indian village that was completely given over to idolatry. Now, you know in India, they have 
millions of gods, gods that they couldn't even possibly begin to enumerate. But this one particular village was given completely over to idolatry. There were shrines and there were altars everywhere. In this particular village, they they worshipped some idol that required chicken blood and there were chicken feathers all over the place. And he saw, he said, look, it was like a scene from Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom. If you've ever seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. He says, that's what it looked like. And he said, my heart became so heavy and so oppressed with all of the idolatry around me. I turned to the Indian pastor's wife, who, were we, who we were on the trip with, and I said, you know, this is so oppressive. How do you deal with this every day? Don't you ever want to get out? He says, you ever thought about coming to the United States for a time just to get away from it? This is what she said to him. And I quote, I have been to the United States. And I don't think I'll ever return because I simply cannot stomach the idolatry in the United States of America. And he's thinking, what are you talking about? Look at, look at what's all around you. He says, I, I don't understand. She says, your God is your stomach and you have restaurants everywhere. <laughs> it makes you want to go on a diet, you know. She said, your gods are your sports teams. And you build billion-dollar stadiums to house them. And you leave the house of the Lord on His day to go worship them. Your God is your television. And you line your chairs up around them so that you can worship at the altar of entertainment. By hurting... It's getting really quiet in here. By that definition, we could also say, she didn't say this, but I think you would admit that by that definition, you could also say that our God is self-image. And we build malls and shopping centers to buy products that will make us feel better, conforming to the image of the world rather than just being content, being created in the image of God. You could probably say that... um, Our God is politics. And our particular political figure is our Messiah. And we worship them with our vote. Pastor Tim Keller, some of you have heard his name before. He once said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That is your idol. If you have ever said anything like this, if I had that, then I would finally feel like my life would have meaning. If I had that, then I would know my life has value. If I had that, then I would finally feel significant. Then I would finally feel secure. You need to understand that whatever that is, is your idol. So whatever. You could say, I, I, I just feel that if I had him... I just feel that if I had her, finally I would find meaning in my life and I would have value. 
I would finally feel secure, I would finally feel significant, then you need to know he or she is your idol. If you have said, you know, I'm working really hard because I need to save at least $2 million in my 401k, and once I hit $2 million, then finally I will find significance and security as I move into retirement. Then $2 million is your idol. You can call it whatever you want to. It is your idol. I... Um, can tell by your silence that uh, there is more to idolatry than meets the eye. There's more to idolatry than we could ever begin to imagine. And many of us, we bristle at the idea that we could actually be idolaters. But trust me, folks, the church has been fighting this battle since before the church was even founded. This was Eve's problem when she could no longer be satisfied with just the simple image that God had given her and be content with the provisions that he made, but felt that she needed more. And in that moment, she started committing idolatry. And it has been the issue that we have faced ever since. Now, I, I want you to know that as I was studying this, as I, you know, go on uh, various, you know, resources and whatnot. You know, I'm just trying to get as much information as I can. And I, I stumbled onto something that I personally had never seen before. Some of you may have seen this. And I just want to tell you right out in transparency, I, I'm not smart enough to come up with some of the things I'm going to tell you today. And I would gladly tell you the source that I'm pulling this from, but everybody's using it. So I don't know where it originated. But I just think we need to ask ourselves some serious questions. Because again, a lot of us, we just do not want to believe that there are idols in our life. But when you really start digging down, you're, you're thinking. And that's why it's so quiet here. Because it's easy to come in here on Sunday morning and lift up the name of Jesus. But it's how you conduct yourself every single day that really determines if you worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength or if there's a secret lover on the side. For instance, if you have ever found yourself saying or you've ever found yourself thinking life only has meaning, I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth financial freedom, and very nice possessions, then materialism is your idol. If you have ever found yourself saying or thinking, life only has meaning, I only have worth, if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in, then inner ring would be your idol. Idol, or you could say uh, your inner circle, you could say your friends. Your friends are your idol. If you ever found yourself saying or found yourself thinking, life only has meaning, I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me, then family is your idol. If you've ever found yourself saying or thinking, life only has meaning, I only have worth, if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, then relationships are your idol. Just a few weeks ago, I 
If you remember, I was talking about who is your King Uzziah. Remember we were talking about that? And, and the King Uzziah is anyone or anything you put your hope and your trust in. And I mentioned marriage. And there was a, an individual that came to me shortly after that message and said, I had never considered it, but my marriage is my idol. That It is my king. I have more confidence in my marriage than I do in my God. If you've ever found yourself saying or ever found yourself thinking life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work, then achievement is your idol. If you've ever found yourself saying or, or, or thinking life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I am hurting in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt, then suffering is your idol. And I know some of you are thinking, what are you talking about, Pastor Kurt? Listen, this would have been something I would have never considered 30 years ago. But after 30 years of pastoral ministry, I'm going to tell you, there are some people that worship the idol of suffering. And these are the individuals that cannot function unless there's chaos. They cannot function unless there is a crisis. And so even if they have to create a crisis, they're going to have crisis. These are the ones that are always bringing up the past. That are bringing things up from 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And throwing them in their face because they're idle is suffering, and the only way they can worship that God is by suffering. So you have to create conflict. The last one I'll look at, there were many more, but I'm just going to look at these ones quickly. If you've ever found yourself saying or thinking, life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I have a particular kind of look or body image, then your image is your idol. And there are many of us in this room, we are obsessed with our weight, with our hair, with our nails. I'm not necessarily that obsessed with it. But, but, but we're obsessed with the shoes that we wear, the sneakers that we wear, the cars that we drive, because it's all about image to us. And we'll only believe that we have value and worth if we project the right image. Now, now here's the reality. I, I know that some of you are quiet, and I don't know if that's because you're bored already or if you're just deeply convicted or you're thinking about these things. But here's the reality is that even now, a lot of us are just pushing away and say, well, I can kind of see where people would go with that, but that's not me. Like, I know that I care about how I look, but I'm not obsessed with that. I mean, you know, I'm not worried about that. I, I know that I, I like some finer things, but I could never say that, that I, I'm... I'm obsessed with them, that I worship them. But, but you have to kind of look beyond the surface and start asking some real questions. Like, when was the last time you sat down and just said, where's my money going? Where, where, is, where is the money trail? Some of you say, well, I have bills to pay. I understand that everybody needs a house, but do you need that house? I mean, why have you stretched yourself Almost to the point that if you lost your job, you'd lose everything. Why, why did you have to have that house? I know you need a car, but did you need that car? 
I know you needed a vacation, but did you need that vacation? I know you needed to do your hair, but... <laughs> you, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, look at where the money's going. How much money do you give to the work of the Lord every month? How much money do you give to entertainment? Nothing wrong with going out. There's nothing wrong at all with going out for dinner, but... Do you understand what I'm, where's the money going? You're saying, Pastor Kurt, that, that's not true. What did Jesus say? Where your heart is, your treasure. Your treasure will be where your heart is. It's all connected. Just follow the money. Show me the money, and I'll show you who your God is. Let me ask you, what do you daydream about? Now, I'm not talking about your evening dreams. You have no control over those. But when you just let your mind wander through the course of the day, what do you think about? It's your idol. Where are your greatest fears? What, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves because they reveal the true state of our heart. And who our God really is. Now, listen, there are others. Some of you are like, please move on, okay? There are others that we could talk about because work can be an idol. Your culture, your race can become an idol. I'm just being honest. Your political party can be your idol. So there's many other things that we could talk about. We're not. All of these that I've just mentioned, however, are all what we would call surface idols. They're the ones that maybe are easier to detect. They, they lay at the surface and we can understand and we can recognize them. But there are four idols that we would call source idols. These would be the idols from which all the other idols stem from. The, the, these would be the idols that... that bring about the origin of all the other idols that we look at. And we need to look at these ones a little deeper because we need to get down to the heart of the issue. Yeah, you might have, you know, an an idolatrous worship toward materialism, but why is that? Where does that stem from? And there are four source idols. I hope you're taking some notes here today. The first source idol would be comfort. Comfort is an idol. Pleasure is an idol. And you are a comfort worshiper if you have ever believed that life only has meaning and that you only have worth and value if you are comfortable. If everything is pleasing to you. If you worship the idol of comfort, your life is marked first by privacy. You love your privacy. You're a very private person. I won't ask you how many of you are private people. But you need to know that if you're a very private and guarded person, there is a very good chance that you worship at the altar of comfort. You love privacy. All of your relationships are at arm's distance. Your relationships are just an inch deep at all because you know that the deeper you get into a relationship, the more that is required of you. And you're not about demands and requirements. You're all about comfort. 
So your life is marked by privacy. There's absolutely no room for accountability. You would never in a million years get into a small group of men and women where you would have to be accountable because you want to live your life the way you want to, what you're comfortable with. So you demand your freedom and you actually will resist any kind of demands or responsibilities that are placed upon you. For that reason, you could care less about being productive. You could care less about uh, actually being effective at all because it's all about comfort for you. The only thing you work at is what makes you comfortable, is what ends up pleasing you. So you would never put yourself in a position where any demands or responsibilities were laid upon you. You constantly worship at the altar of comfort. Your greatest fear is stress and conflict, and you'll do everything you can to avoid it, and you hate demands, and you feel like anybody that puts demands upon you or puts responsibilities on you is trying to control you. And for this reason, people around you often feel neglected. And they feel neglected because you're not putting forth any effort into anything. So your wife or your husband says, I just feel like I don't exist. You don't do anything to help. You don't do anything to lift my burden. I sometimes feel like I could walk in this room and you wouldn't even know that I was there. People around you feel neglected. If you've had anyone say, I just feel like you don't care about me, boy, you may be worshiping at the altar of comfort. And the way you worship this God is with boredom. (laughs) It's amazing. If you struggle with feeling bored a lot, then you probably worship at the altar of comfort. Because God did not create you to be idle. God did not, well, can I hear a better amen than that? You know, people look at work and they think work was part of the fall. Check your Bible. God created us to work. God created us to be productive. God created us to be responsible, to be effective, to be efficient. God created us to work. Now, we need rest. There's nothing wrong with that. But God didn't create us to worship comfort and rest. God created us to work to take responsibility, to be productive in every area of life. And so whenever we try to worship comfort, we end up feeling bored, and boredom just leads to more ways to pervert ourselves. Because only God can provide the comfort that you long for. In Jesus' name. That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 and verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of some comfort. No, the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God and His Holy Spirit. God never intended for you and I to be idle. He created us to work for the glory and the honor of God. And when we get weary and tired, we go to the living God who is the God of all comfort that we seek in Jesus' name. Don't worry, we only got three more to go. (laughs) The second source idol would be approval. Approval. 
If you have ever said or you have thought, life only has meaning, I only have worth if people approve of me, if they affirm me, if I am loved by others, then chances are you worship the idol of approval. There are some people that they believe that the real meaning of life is winning the approval of others, is being affirmed. They believe that they only have value and worth if people are affirming them. So consequently, you may need people around you all the time. You go out of your mind when you're alone. You've got to have people around you. You're always the one that's got to be the center of attention and talk loud enough so that everybody's listening to you because you need that approval. You need that affirmation. Your greatest nightmare is rejection. And you have lost a lot of sleep through the years because you sit and worry about whether they approve of you, whether they affirm you, whether they love you. It destroys you. And as a result of that, everyone around you feels smothered. Now there's going to be some pushback on this, I know, but your greatest struggle is feeling like a coward. That when you're alone and you start thinking about your life, you feel like such a coward. You feel cowardly. And there's a good reason for that. Because in order to please everyone, you've got to say what they want to hear. You don't know how to stand up for your own convictions. You're vacillating all the time. When you're with this crowd, you've got to say the right thing to please them. And when you're with this crowd, you've got to say the right thing to please them. Because you're all about affirmation and so literally you struggle all your life with feeling like a coward because you've never been able to take a stand and stand for it regardless to what anyone thinks. Now here is the flip side of this because I can see some of you saying, well, I'm not that way. Yeah, and I know that. There's some of you that walk around and say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care if they affirm me. I don't care if they love me. I'm right and that's the way it is. And I don't care if anybody else affirms me. We're going to get real honest right now. Because I can see somebody right now. Like you're thumping your chest like a gorilla saying, that's me. 30 years of pastoral ministry, I'm going to tell you, if that's your attitude, you are looking for approval. Because the reason you say it is because you think it makes you look so tough and you're trying to win the approval of everyone else. Pastor, move on, please. (laughs) Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of a man brings a snare. Whatever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be affirmed. Can, you, can I hear an amen? There's nothing wrong. It's good to hear somebody say, you did a good job. Thank you. And we need to do that more often. But it makes a lousy God because you're not always going to get approval from others. But thankfully, I am approved in Christ's eyes. He is the source of my approval. Ephesians 1 verses 5 and 6 says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I love that. He's made us accepted in the beloved. I don't have to jump 
through hoops to be accepted. I was made accepted in the beloved according to the good pleasure of his will in Jesus' name. And a man or a woman who is secure in the acceptance of the Savior doesn't need the approval and affirmation of man. The approval of God is enough to carry the day in Jesus' name. The third source idol is the idol of control. Ooh, how many control... I better not ask that again. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this. Control. Have you ever thought or ever said, life only has meaning, I only have worth when I am in control. When I have mastery over my life. When I am in control of my environment. When I am like He-Man, the master of my universe. Then control is your idol. You ever been around those individuals that are always bragging about their self-discipline? Nothing wrong with being self-disciplined. But there are people that will just always talk about how disciplined they are and how undisciplined everyone else is around them. These are individuals that want to master life, but not just their life. They want to master everyone's life around them. They want to control everybody's life around them. And they use intimidation and they use every tactic that is available because they want to control everyone because that's the only way that they can feel safe and secure is if they're controlling everyone's life. There's no room for spontaneity in a control freak. Everyone, everything that they do has to be done with certainty. So these are the individuals that whenever you go out with them, I want to know what time it is we're leaving. I want to know what time it is we're going to arrive. I want to know what time we're going to take our first break. I want to know where we're going to take our first break. I want to know when we're going to eat lunch. I want to know where we're going to eat lunch. I want to even know what we're going to order for lunch. These are the individuals that when you're out with them at times, you want to do something, they'll say, oh, I don't think we should do that because I read an article about five years ago about 10 people that did the same thing and they all die doing that in an obscure country somewhere else in the unknown world. They're the ones that are trying to control all the action. Whoa. That's a nervous laughter I hear. They're inflexible. It's their way and if they don't get their way, they become very upset. The price that they pay for that control is their spontaneity and loneliness. Say, Pastor, loneliness? Of course, who wants to hang with that guy? I mean, seriously, I mean, who wants to be with them? The fear that they live with day in and day out is uncertainty. They're afraid every day of uncertainty, and they keep trying to take control of their life. And those around them feel condemned. And you say, well, why do they feel condemned? Because controllers love to say things like, why can't you just? Why can't you just be more like me? Why can't you just listen to me? Why can't you just follow my instructions? They're controllers. And they worship control with worry and anxiety. They pay homage to their God by worrying, by living with fear and anxiety because they can't control everything. And isn't that the cycle? 
The controller tries to control their environment, but they see they can't control it, so they worry. And the more they worry, the more they try to control. But the more they try to control, they see they can't, so they worry about it, so they tighten their grip further. It's just a vicious cycle because no one can be in control of everything. You can't be in control of what happens to your body many times. You can't be in control of what people do and how they respond. They're out of your control. These are the ones that always say, if I want it done right, I'm going to have to do it myself. That one hit. You can always tell when you're getting close, man. I mean... They are. They're the ones that just say, listen, if I want to done it right, I'm going to have to do it myself. So they don't delegate at all. But they always complain about how they have to do everything. But when you ask them for help, they say, no, I want it done right, so I got to do it myself. It's just control. But you'll never have control because there's only one who is in control. And that's why Philippians tells us in chapter 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Because God is in control of it all. Can you Come on, give him all the praise for that if you believe it. Bless the Lord. All right, one last one, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Power. Power is the final of these source idols. Power. Life only has meaning. I only have value if I have power. If I'm winning. If I'm successful. If I'm influential. If I get it my way. People that walk around with a winning complex. Like I've got to win. We want to be winners. And and just are stressing winning and success. And being influential. And it's got to be my way. They worship at the altar of power. They have to have it their way. They, They tend to have a burden complex. They're the ones that they always feel like they got to come in and say... If anybody's going to save the family, it's going to be me. I guess it's up to me to bear the responsibilities of this family, of this organization, of this team. They're powering up. For those that worship power, their greatest fear is humiliation. They hate being disrespected. I met a lot of men in my lifetime and a lot of men that say, I just can't stand when I'm disrespected. Men just bow up. I need to be respected. Well, do you live a life that's worthy of respect? I've never, maybe only in a joking way, I have never said to my wife, respect me. And I've dropped the ball a lot, but I've given Kathy no reason not to respect me. And men that walk around with that respect attitude and, 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 uh, and just that fear of being humiliated in any way, shape, or form, they worship at the altar of power. Consequently, those around you feel used. And the reason for this is because as you worship power, you don't care about anybody else. 
You only see them as a way to win, to increase your influence. So even your family, you don't love them disinterestedly. You only see them as a way of having more power, of having more influence. So you see everyone as a means to an end, not the object of your affection. They tend to thrive on competition. They want to win. But interestingly enough, it's not always about winning. Sometimes it's just about not losing. They can't stand that feeling of, I've done something wrong or, or that, that, that I've lost. So, consequently, they have a really hard time saying, I'm, I'm, I'm still, like my old happy days. Does anybody remember the fawns? Could never say it. I'm, 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 they can't for the life of them say, I'm sorry. They cannot for the life of them say, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. And even when they can muster it up, even when they get, I'm sorry, it's always with, but, how else did you expect me to behave when you did that? Because they've always got to put themselves in a win-win situation. So they can never just accept responsibility for their own actions. They always say but because they've got to make sure that even when they're wrong, you know it was your fault ultimately. And they worship the God of power with anger and rage. Now listen, we can be angry and sin not. The Bible tells us that. But this is an outburst of wrath. This is almost a violent anger where they just get angry all the time. And the reason that they get angry is because everybody's blocking their power. Nothing wrong with wanting to be influential. But power is a lousy God because there's always going to be someone stronger than you. There's always going to be someone that's got more power than you do. And that's why it's better just to submit to the ultimate power. Ephesians 1 and verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being lightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places. He has all the power you will ever need. And if you humble yourself under his mighty hand, he will raise you up when it's necessary in Jesus' name. Yeah, go ahead and give the Lord praise for that. Okay, thank you for sitting with me in that. Now, like I said, this may feel a little incomplete because we have another section that we need to go into that's going to be more of the teaching from the scriptures we just read. But I just really, as I was reading that this week, my heart was convicted and I said, you know what? There's no sense in just dealing with this on the surface. Let's get right down to the heart. 
Because remember, a, a lot of you might immediately have said, well, I struggle with body image. That's great. I'm glad that God gave you the insight and that you were humble enough to know that image is your idol. But now I want to know, where is that stemming from? Are you obsessed with your weight and you go on these diets and you have to wear this particular kind of jean and this kind of shoe? You have to have this kind of... Uh, pair of sneakers? Do you have to have this kind of a car? What's driving that? Is it because you really worship comfort? Or is it because you need the approval? And, and, and the only way you're going to feel like people will approve of you and affirm you is if you dress and look a certain way. Are you using it to control people? Because isn't it sad that there are people in this world that can actually be controlled by the way people look and dress? Are you doing it for power? Are you doing it to gain power over someone's life? That's what I want to know. I'm glad that you recognize materialism as a stronghold in you and that you have to have a certain car that will go a certain speed and that you've got to live in a certain kind of a house. I'm glad that you recognize that that is your idol, but what I want to know is where's that stemming from? Is it out of comfort that you worship at the idol of comfort? Or is it because, again, you're looking for approval and you love it when somebody drives by and says, Wow, what a car. Are you, are you driving that, living in that, going there because you like control? You like to control your environment. Are you doing it because you want to power up and you want to be more influential? Here, that's where you get to, and I can't tell you that. You've got to get alone with God and say, Lord, help me with this. Help me to discern this because I don't want to have any other God before me but you, Lord God Almighty. And that's what we have to do. That's where we have to go with this. Now, you know, here, here's what's really interesting about it. There's nothing wrong with wanting, like I said a moment ago, nothing wrong with wanting to be affirmed and approved. I mean, is there anyone who doesn't like when somebody comes up and acknowledges something you've done? I mean, it makes you feel good when somebody comes and says, man, that was really great. You'll never know how that ministered to me. Praise God. It just makes a lousy God because you can't, you can't uh, get everyone's approval. Not everyone's going to affirm you. And a lot of what you do is going to go unthanked. So if it's your God, you're going to be frustrated most of your life. There's nothing wrong with comfort. I mean, we all need time away. How I many of you are thankful that you can relax a little bit? God knows that. Jesus took time off and resorted away from the crowds at times. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just a lousy God because life is full of demands. Life is full of responsibilities and if you're going to do anything with your life you've got to put forth some effort. But God has all control. God has uh, or God has all the comfort that you need. God has all the approval that you need. There's nothing wrong with with wanting control. The Bible talks about self-control. The Bible talks about being good stewards over what has been entrusted to us. There's nothing wrong with control. It's just a lousy God because you can't control everything in the universe. can't do it. But God is in control. 
And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be influential. There's nothing wrong with wanting to steward the influence that God has given you to move people into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing wrong with it at all. But again, it makes a lousy God because there's always going to be somebody more powerful than you. So I would rather just submit myself to the one who has all power and all authority. His name is Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. And see, this is the basis of the commandment of the Lord. Exodus 20, verses 3 and 5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. The greatest misunderstanding towards worship to Almighty God is that we think God needs our worship. And people will walk around and say, you got an egotistical God. He just created you so you could worship Him. That is so ridiculous. God doesn't need our worship. God is God all by Himself. God just knows that all of us are going to worship something. And He says, if you go worshiping other gods, you're all going to fall short. So direct your worship toward me because I approve you through my son, Jesus Christ. And I will comfort you when you are down. And I've got all the power that you need. And I am in absolute control over it all. Worship me. I'll bring you through it all. In Jesus' mighty name. He is the God that we worship. He is the only God. In Jesus' mighty name. Can you stand and can you lift your hands to the living, almighty God? And can you thank Him that there is no one like Him today in Jesus' name?